Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Happy New Year to everyone. Happy 2021. I can't believe it. 2020 is gone, you guys. It's gone. Holla at your boy, 2020. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, it is gone. But it's so funny that we all think that <laughs> just because 2020 is gone, that everything's going to be better. Well, let's hope everything's going to be better. But it's not like the it's not like the coronavirus knows what year it is. But um, I am very, very hopeful for this year. I think, uh, thank God this vaccine is, is happening right now. I hope they get, uh, I hope they get this rollout moving a little more smoothly, let's say. But, um, I got high hopes for 2021. Got a lot of pressure on you, 2021. This is, uh, the year of the ox, the Chinese year of the ox. And I was born in the year of the ox. So hopefully that was a good year when I was born. Uh, you know, some good stuff happened in 1961. Wasn't a bad year. Um, so. This year, the year of the ox, hopefully 2021 will be good too. On the show today, um, we have Fred Clare, who is the former general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He helped lead that 1988 team to a world championship. And Fred is coming on to talk about his journey with cancer recently and his partnership with the City of Hope in fighting that. And uh, Fred is a, a friend of mine. Um Used to live a few houses down uh, from me here in Pasadena. Now he lives a couple blocks away, but I've known Fred for uh, for a good while now, and uh, he's really his story is really inspirational. I wanted you guys to hear it. And uh, his book, uh, there's a book, Extra Innings, that um, was written by Tim Madigan um, about Fred's journey and everything. It's a great book. It really is fascinating, and I wanted people to know about the City of Hope as well, as does Fred, as kind of both literally about the City of Hope and as a metaphor for kind of what we need this year, you guys, after what we went through last year. You know, we need a country of hope, <laughs> not just a city of hope. But uh, the City of Hope is this amazing place that literally does uh, give people second, third, fourth chances, you know, and uh, is here in Southern California. And one of their mottos is, you know, it's not just bringing years to your life, but life to your years, you know. And that's, I think that's awesome. So I wanted to start the year with something a little positive, a little positive journey. We need a lot of positivity this year. You know, 2021, we'll mix it up a lot here. Uh, I did a lot of uh, talking about politics in the last six months because I wanted to cover the election. But as you know, it's not the only thing I'm interested in. Um, love talking about acting and writing those things in showbiz. Um, you know, I love sports, which, you know, we get to talk a little bit about Fred today, about baseball a little bit, you know, talk about my Lakers. People know that I do sleight of hand magic, you know, that type of thing. Um, love talking about science and some of the advances that we're making. So we'll mix it up a lot this year. Well, I think we want to, after this, you know, big, uh, you know, after 2020 was just so filled with the pandemic and the election, take a little breather, have some fun this year, talk about a lot of different topics, and we'll cover politics and culture as well, as we always do, things that I'm also interested in. And I would love to hear from you guys, topics that you would love 
me to talk about or guests that you would uh, love uh, for me to talk to, you know. And of course, I'm always interested in books and that sort of thing. Nonfiction, ironically, is my favorite type of book, but there's a lot of good uh, um, novels out there and stuff too. So that's what we're looking to do this year. And let's see, today is January 2nd, so we got 18 more days till that mofo is gone. He's going to be gone, you guys. That mofo going to be gone, which is good. He'll be able to play all the golf he wants to. I think he should be happy about that. Although it will be interesting to see what happens on January 6th when the vote, I think, gets certified through Congress or whatever it is, and Trump is trying to get Pence to do his dirty deeds right now. It's so hilarious, you know. And I think Pence is like, Actually saying, no, I don't want to do that. Like Pence is actually getting, you know, getting a little stink eye towards Trump right now. It's kind of interesting. Do you think Pence is going to run in 2024? Hmm? Maybe. Who is going to run for the Republicans in 2024? Because that's what we're going to be looking at. So that's the thing we're going to be covering soon, too. What uh, this is all going to look like. And um, Biden, man, I'm I'm pretty. <laughs> I'm praying for Biden. I hope he does well. But Biden, and you know, I hate to say this, you guys, but Biden is old. He is. And there's no two ways around it. You know, he's gone through a lot. You know, I don't know if he's going to run in 2024. I think regardless of what happens, it'd be interesting to hear what you guys think about that. Do you think, do you think he's just going to do one term and step aside and, like, could our next election be like, you know, Kamala Harris against Nikki Haley? I mean, wouldn't that be an, an interesting uh, election? Uh, 2024 might be very interesting. And what if Trump runs again against that? That would be hilarious. Uh, so anyhow, um, looking forward to that in the next few years. Believe me, the way that elections start now, people are going to be talking about the next election probably by the end of next year. But as I said, you know, Let's hope that this year just keeps getting better and better with uh, this pandemic that we're facing. It's pretty bad here in Los Angeles County right now, but I think it's going to turn the tide soon. I think because we have the holidays and all that stuff. But with the vaccine coming and hopefully people will be getting smarter, we'll be through this. And guys, what's it going to be like when it's gone? Like, are we going to have PTSD with this? You know, or, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what things in our lives uh, have changed that won't go back, you know? Are we going to be completely sick of Zoom and all these things? Or do you think that's going to be more of a permanent thing? Are people going to want to work from home more? It is fascinating that many people have moved to different areas, you know, like for some of these tech companies and that type of thing. And people don't want to live in some of these expensive areas and living in parts of the country that they actually want to live in, maybe around friends or relatives, or just maybe it's the scenery. It'd be interesting to see if that keeps going. And as for me, also, personally, I'll have some projects that I'll share with you guys, projects that are coming up, things uh, that I'm working on as they come out. I'll announce them. So there's uh, some really exciting things I'm working on right now that I hope to share with you guys. And as always, I appreciate you guys uh, rooting for me out there and watching the stuff and all that. I don't know if we'll do another round of Wilmore. A lot of people have asked about that, this, the election special that, that I did on Peacock that I really enjoyed. And by the way, guys, it was so much fun to get back in front of the camera. It was really a blast. But that was designed as a, a special for uh, for the election. Whether or not we'll do more of that, I'm not sure. But 
I will say this. Um, I plan on doing some more things in front of the camera. Um, and whether it's another special like that or, you know, some acting things or maybe some little pop-ups here and there, certainly plan to do that. But the biggest thing that I'm doing right now, just so you guys know, is I'm involved in kind of creating TV shows. It's, you know, you know, one of my big passions and working with like young talent and that type of thing and helping to mentor people and that sort of thing. Kind of my way of giving back, as you will. You got to give back because, you know what? It's what makes it fun for me. I do like what I do, but I also like working with people and seeing, uh, you know, seeing other people get a chance at the at the helm to do their thing. It's really a lot of fun. Um, so anyhow, that's what we're looking forward to. All right. So we'll do a quick word and then we'll come back and talk to my buddy, my old pal. Uh, Fred Clare and his journey to City of Hope and finding World Championship team extra innings. Be right back. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Um, man, we're having some good conversations lately, and I've been looking forward to this one for a very long time. This gentleman, he's in a a, a, a different Hall of Fame <laughs> than, than in a really special Hall of Fame. Uh, the Hall of Fame of life, I guess you could say. Um, I've known him for years and years, he and his wife. And you know him as the ex-manager of the ex-general uh, manager of the Dodgers for that great year, 1988 World Series, and for years after that. But he also had a different fight that he's going to talk about here that has to deal with the City of Hope and his fight with cancer. Mr. Fred Clare, welcome to Black on the Air. Fred, it's so great to have you here. Larry, it's so great. It's such an honor. The book uh, that's out uh, now called Extra Innings uh, that was written in collaboration with Tim Madigan is about your your journey both with the Dodgers and with uh, with cancer in the City of Hope. Such an interesting balance of those two things. You know? I think uh, the author, uh, Tim Madigan, and I'll give a little promo, of course, of the, uh, of the book, did a marvelous job, Larry, because yeah. when I went to City of Hope uh, and my uh, diagnosis of a very uh, serious cancer, skin yeah. cancer that had struck me in the lip and went on into my jaw and saw the great work that the city of hope did. Yeah. Um, and then I, I recall going into the uh, Biller center where uh, patients and guests comes in and mm-hmm. asked for a book on the city of hope. And mm-hmm. there was really nothing there that really told the story wow. of the city of hope. Yeah. And I thought and said to Cheryl, this is something that's really needed. Uh-huh. And so I um, had contact with a publisher and uh, mascot books. And um, my point was that this needs to be a book on the city of hope. Yeah. We will be the vehicle yeah. to go through it. I, this doesn't need and shouldn't be a Fred book. That book was done many years ago and it's on the shelf where it right. belongs. This needs to be a book on the city of hope, on what uh-huh. they do, uh, on other patients. And I think Tim Madigan... Uh, did a marvelous weaving um, the baseball part of it 
in with the story of, uh, of the wonderful city of hope. If you will, Fred, I will place your humility aside for a second. And, and I will just say that I, I think it's awesome that your story and the hope story are together because it is an interesting story of hope, you know, to mix a metaphor. And, you know, I've known you for a while. You know, we, we, uh, share a membership at, uh, the, at Oakmont, uh, here. And you've always been the nicest guy. And I was, uh, you know, and I met you years ago. We lived on the same street. You know? And I, for me, I was like, oh, my God, that's Fred Clare, you know. <laughs> so he's general manager of the Dodgers. I'm such a big Dodgers fan and everything, you know. But you were always such a great guy. And to read about you in this book and to get the experience that people have had of you. And it's interesting when, and I don't know how this is for you, when you get to know the experience people have had of you, you know, and the thing that pops out to me is your integrity, Fred. You know, it's followed you your entire career. You know, uh, there's a great story in the book about the incident with Jay Howe. I think it was in the World Series uh, where he had the pine tar on his glove, yeah. you know. The championship and, series that year, yes. Yes. Or, oh, it was the Mets. It was in championship series, right, yeah. which... I still don't know how we pulled that one out. You know, I mean, the Mets were so good back then, you know, and I'll come back to that story too. But, but the point of it was you insisted that he be straightforward with the press and none of these shenanigans and everything. And it's such, it's such, it's one story about you, but it kind of explains kind of who you are. Well, I, um, uh, I, I try to um, follow a path of uh, that, my parents blessed me with of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of honesty uh, and integrity. It, it seems uh, so basic in my mind, in my heart, my soul. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's just something that uh, we, we do or we should do. I mean, right. all of us know right from wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really shouldn't be a difficult thing to know yeah. that difference. And so I, I don't, uh, I, I don't really look at it. Uh-huh. Honestly, Larry, as any great accomplishment. I look at it right. more as a way of life because uh-huh. I don't think it's unique uh, to uh, a certain group of people. But uh, in, integrity and credibility are so important uh-huh. to us in our lives. Right. Uh, let's talk about your. Um your baseball career first, and then we'll get into your, your story. How did you first get into baseball? Anyway, you didn't you go to college to uh, go into journalism or that sort of thing? And were you a sports writer uh, initially? I, I was there. I grew up in a very small town in Ohio, Jamestown, Ohio, population 1,500. Yeah. I saw my uh, love, love sports, uh, uh, Ohio, great uh, basketball state, of course. Absolutely. And coming from a small town, we didn't have a football team. Uh, we barely had a baseball team, but we could always find five guys to play basketball. Right. So um, I think the uh, the population was 1,500. I think the gym suited, seated about 700. So everybody went to the basketball game. That's what right. I wanted to be. So yeah. I had this love of sports from a very early age. And I, I thought about, even as a youngster, mm-hmm. how do I stay connected with something that I truly love? that mm-hmm. I, I love to play. I love everything about sports. I love the competitive part of it. And um, so uh, 
I could see as I uh, went on through high school and uh, started college that um, my uh, athletic ability certainly is only going to take me so far. Right, right, right. But somehow, maybe somewhat by chance, as I look back and I see even the small town in Ohio that there I was playing sports, but I was also on the um, uh, the staff for the little yearbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that developed into an interest in journalism when my family moved to California. Mm-hmm. And I went to Torrance High School, and they had a, um, uh, a weekly newspaper. And I got involved in uh, some very influential uh, teachers there. And so that really uh, created my path. I saw this as a way that I could stay in sports. Um, after two years of junior college, went to uh, San Jose State, a degree in journalism, uh, came out on a, um, in the newspaper field. And um, my first job was with the um, Whittier Daily News. I took the job uh, two or three days after graduation. Mm-hmm. And that started me on a uh, path in newspapers that um, led me to uh, ultimately to Long Beach, uh, where I had a chance to uh, join the Dodgers as publicity director. And how, how did that come about? How did that Dodger? Well, well first of all, I, I love the, the newspaper field there. I love being a mm-hmm. sports writer and I became a sports editor at a very young age. Well, sports writers were held in such high esteem then, too. I mean, they were legendary. Not that they are now, but, you know, it was a different world. Uh, yeah, well, I yeah. I, uh, I loved every part of it. I mean, here I was out of college mm-hmm. uh, covering sports in Southern California, had a chance with the Pomona paper where I became the sports editor, I think, at the age of 23 or so. Mm-hmm. So here I was not only covering local sports or Pomona College or Claremont. Was that the Men Progress Topic. Bulletin? Uh, Pomona Progress Bulletin. Yeah, right? I grew up in Pomona, so I know. Oh, right. I didn't know that, Larry. Yeah. In fact, we both went to Mount Sac at different I, times. I, right? I, uh, my yeah. first year after, um, well, my first year was at El Camino. My family moved then to Pomona. Right. And then I went to uh, to Mount Sac. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh I, here I was with, well, you know, the Pomona Progress Bulletin. Absolutely. So here I was, fortunate to be the sports editor at a young age. I could cover a high school game on a Friday night. I could cover USC or UCLA right. on Saturday in football. Yeah, you and I could cover the Rams on Sunday. Yeah. So, you know, here I was extremely happy. The Pomona paper was owned by a wonderful family, the Richardson family. And sadly, as has happened now through the years, the newspaper sold to a big chain of right. uh, papers and they wanted to cut back on everything we built. Mm-hmm. And I thought this isn't what I want to do. Uh, they gave me the choice that, that um, uh, someone in the photography department had to be fired or we had to eliminate uh, the sports wire, which we had added. And I thought, well, what sort of choice are they giving me here? We're going back. <laughs> that led me to Long Beach, uh, in uh, 1968, the Long Beach Press-Telegram covering the mm-hmm. Angels. Right. And then uh, I had the chance to switch to the Dodger beat in 1969. And that was my introduction to the Dodgers. 1969, spring training, Walter O'Malley, uh, the wonderful Dodger front office, Al Campanis, Bill Schweppe, mm-hmm. Walter Austin's the manager, all of the great coaches. 
And so here I see this organization that I think, wow, <laughs> this is something special. 1969, mm-hmm. uh, Larry. And then uh, as uh, time or fate or whatever would have it, uh, I had a chance uh, to apply for a job as publicity director, very mm-hmm. small staff, legendary um, public relations band, marketing, Red Patterson, Arthur Red Patterson, um, had um, got into a little uh, dispute with his publicity director. The publicity director was showing the door. Mm-hmm. Now there was an opening. I um, applied and uh, took the job with the uh, the Dodgers. And I can recall that on my first day with the Dodgers in 1969 in July, uh-huh. uh, the LA Times called and said, uh, Fred, uh, we have a job for you. Uh, no way. And I said, you know, couldn't you have called me yesterday? Exactly. It's funny said, how those things happen. Yeah. <laughs> I said, this is my first day on the job. I can't walk down and tell the Dodgers I'm leaving. Right. So anyway, that was the start, Larry, with the Dodger journey in 1969. I was very fortunate in my career. I went from publicity director mm-hmm. to uh, vice president of public relations and promotions uh, right. to executive vice president. And then in 1987, following the appearance uh, of Al Campanis, as you know, on Nightline. Well, let's talk about that. So, so who? Let's tell everybody who Al Campanis was. And how long had you known Al? You've known him this whole time in the Dodger organization. Uh, he was the general manager at the time, Al, Al Campanis. Yes. And he had been in the Dodger organization uh, for years, and in fact, uh, was. Knew Jackie Robinson very well, right? They were uh, like uh, Al had uh, played in the Dodger organization, yeah. scouted, became an executive, started with the Dodgers in the, I believe, in the nineteen forties. Yeah, uh, ultimately became the uh, the general manager. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I had known um, Al, uh, became a good friend, had known Al since I joined the Dodgers in 69. So now here we are in 1987. And Al goes on Nightline and they're asking him about the dearth of black managers in Major League Baseball. Why are we not seeing? The show, Larry, was Mm -hmm. a... uh, a show about Jackie Robinson's right. 40th anniversary yes. of, being, uh, of breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And so um, Al is um, uh, questioned by uh, Ted Koppel about uh, that anniversary. Right. Uh, and then the question came uh, in the discussion, Alan, uh, why why aren't there more blacks in uh, prominent more prominent positions mm-hmm. in baseball as uh, managers as general managers in my view larry uh, i covered this in a book fred claire my 30 years in dodger blue mm-hmm. al uh, tried to defend his beloved game of baseball Mm-hmm. where there was no defense. Right. And the more he said, because Al in his judgment of players, he was instrumental with uh, Jackie Robinson, with mm-hmm. Roberto Clemente, and with any of the Dodger great players, uh, 
black players who knew Al through the years. So whether it was Joe Black or uh, uh, Lou Johnson or Tommy mm-hmm. Davis or Willie Davis or anyone, mm-hmm. um, Al was a baseball guy. Right. Uh, but he, as a baseball guy, he uh, tried to defend the game where there was absolutely no defense. Yeah. And the more he said, the worse it became. And, uh, and it, um, uh, the reaction to that in uh, Los Angeles of, of, um, of they, uh, why aren't there more blacks? Well, maybe they, Al's answer terribly, sadly, was maybe they lacked the necessities. Yeah. And so he said, lacked the necessities to be a manager or a field manager. And part of what he said in the answer is, um, it's funny, I had the opportunity to do the White House Correspondence Center. It was Obama's last one. And and I ended it uh, by saying, you know, when I was a kid, you know, in the 60s, a black man couldn't even be a quarterback on a football yeah. team. Like he couldn't lead yeah. a football team. And yeah. now to see a black man leading the free world, you know, it's, it's just overwhelming. But yeah. what Al Campanis was saying was thought by a lot of people. It's, it's he was, to me, he was, repeating the thing that we had always heard that we felt people had thought that black men should not be leading white men, you know, that it's not about the necessity, the, the necessities he's no. talking about is the ability of white men to accept the leadership role of black yeah. men. Yeah. This was, uh, he, I went on nightline after the opening game of the 1987 season. Yeah. The game was played at the Astrodome. Mm-hmm. I went down after the game and set, uh, on the field in a chair with the TV crew there. Right. And um, as uh, this story um, uh, unfolded and the interview and um, uh, three days uh, later, the, after the uh, before the third game in Houston, there was to be a third game, a three-game series, mm-hmm. uh, Peter O'Malley um, uh, asked Al for his resignation. Mm-hmm. And um, Peter called me uh, from Houston uh, and said, Fred, um, you have to take this job. He didn't uh, really ask me. He said, Fred, right. you need to take this job. And, um, you know, it was so sad. And Al had not told anyone that he was going to be on Nightline. Uh-huh. And I recall the, the call uh, from Houston. And Peter said, uh, Fred Al wants to speak to you. And he said, Fred, I wish you could have been with me last night. Mm-hmm. And I said, Al, I, my job then was uh, Vice President of Public Relations Promotions. Right. Uh, I said, Al, I, I wish you had told us that you were going to be on the show because, you know, we, we didn't know what all the questions would be, but, but I think we could have been it, it helpful to Al in terms of this is an anniversary and a celebration mm-hmm. of Jackie Robinson. So, you know, not to try to put words in his, his mouth, but just to recognize what the show is all about. Did Al ever talk about, did you talk with Al after that about this at all? And did he ever like talk about what he actually said? Like was, cause it's one thing to say, I shouldn't have said anything, but then it's another thing to say, you know what? 
actually what I said was pretty fucked up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why are those words coming out of my mouth? You know, because he obviously is a different man than the words that came out of his mouth. How yeah. you uh, and the stories that were written almost immediately, he was an intelligent man, mm-hmm. but he knew immediately how uh, bad it had been for him. Mm-hmm. In fact, the story goes that. He met Vinny uh, Scully after the game mm-hmm. uh, at the hotel. Vinny said, um, you know, let's go have a bite eat or something. And, and I said, you know, Vinny said, um, I think I, I really messed up mm-hmm. tonight. Mm-hmm. And Vinny, not knowing what happened, said, oh, no, come on. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll be. Vinny had no idea what had been said. Mm-hmm. But in terms of my relationship to Al, I'll never forget that he he said, you know, I have a picture of Jackie Robinson behind my desk. Mm-hmm. And my reaction was, Al, you, you don't have to tell me who you are. <laughs> yes, right. I, I know who you are. Yeah. But you know, the thing about it, and I don't think it's that, that this has really ever been fully realized. Mm-hmm. Al never made excuses. He never said it was a trick question. I didn't know that that, that right. was what he Al took responsibility for what he said mm-hmm. and lived with it the rest of his life. He knew he had been so wrong. The thing about Al and people having the necessities to be a general manager, I mean, very candidly, I don't know whether I've ever said it. I don't think Al would have thought I had the necessities to be a general right. manager. Right. Well, it may not Al, have happened. Al, I was trained but... by Branch Rickey. I don't right. think I thought anybody could be uh, the general manager if he hadn't been trained by Branch Rickey. Right, right. And for you non-baseball fans, Branch Rickey was the man who brought Jackie Robinson into Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball, really, I'll just give a little more context, right, because this normally isn't a sports sure. podcast, you know. And I know many people know this, so I apologize to say these things. over. But baseball was the American sport for so long. And yeah. baseball had... a uh, we'll call it collusion against black players because I don't know if it was expressly written and it may have been written in the bylaws, but I'm not sure if it was, but it operated more as a collusion where it was just a silent agreement that blacks would not play in major league baseball. Now there were many, there were many exhibitions, you know, that sort of thing against uh, players from the Negro league and that sort of thing. But uh, until branch Rickey decided that this is ridiculous, you know, in 1946, where he had uh, Jackie Robinson first in his farm team as part of the Brooklyn Dodgers and brought him onto the team. I mean, that was a huge change in America. It's a sea change. It's before the larger civil rights movement and everything. I think we, I don't know, if, I don't think Jackie Robinson passed that time. I don't know if there's the the collective memory that needs to be had of that moment, the as important as it should be, Fred, honestly. I, I feel like people defer to the 60s, and rightly so. But Jackie Robinson, that moment in the 20th century, is as important, if, well, if not even well, more so, for well, the way you, America you, was at the time. You, you know who acknowledged that as much as anyone, Larry? Mm-hmm. was Martin Luther King. Yeah. Realizing uh, the importance of Jackie's uh, contribution. Sure. Uh, and, of, uh, and of Branch Rickey. Right. And, um, you know, Larry, uh, I've always, uh, the greatest honor of my life 
uh, in baseball mm-hmm. and a large honor in life itself was to know and be with Jackie on several mm-hmm. meaningful occasions, yeah, including um, his uh, final public appearance mm-hmm. at the World Series in 1972. Yeah. Uh, and earlier that year in June, Jackie was at Dodger Stadium mm-hmm. for one of the few times where his number was retired along with uh, Roy Campanella yeah. and Koufax. So now comes the World Series at, uh, in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and the commissioner, Louis Kuhn, invites Jackie to throw out the first ball. And um, Jackie uh, said to the commissioner, I will if you give me a chance to speak. This is all uh-huh. well documented on YouTube, and it's an important part of uh-huh. Jackie's history and the history of baseball, really. Yeah. I was with Jackie, uh, Peter O'Malley, and myself before, with, with his small group, before he was to go out and uh, throw out the uh, first pitch. What was really remarkable, Larry, is that a person approached the group, and we could see who it was. We knew who it was. He was uh-huh. within seven feet, eight feet of Jackie, and Jackie didn't recognize it. Uh-huh. It was Pee Wee Reese, this longtime teammate who yeah. supported and defended Jackie. Yeah. Jackie's diabetes was so bad. Wow. Jackie spoke at the uh, that before that game. Jackie, being very intelligent and very, being very diplomatic, uh-huh. uh, said, baseball's made progress. But I will not be happy until his words, I believe, is reported. I see a black man in the third base coaching yeah. box. Larry, the significance of that, Jackie died nine days after that. Wow. Age of 52. Yeah, and so, so here, young. here he was in the final days of his life, mm-hmm. the great athlete who now couldn't seat five feet in front of him, battling for the cause of equality, diversity, decency. Um, And so the impact of that has been really so meaningful Uh in my life uh, and and remains uh, today because of, uh, to bring it full force into today, uh-huh. Going through cancer, we had, uh, you know, know, through the book, two golf tournaments to raise money for City of Hope, uh-huh. fortune raising a half million dollars. But I, I wanted to give a Celebration of Life Award to yeah. um, each year. But the main reason I wanted the award, yeah. I wanted to honor uh-huh. but I wanted a quote on that trophy. And that quote that has been on that trophy, first given to Rod Carew and uh-huh. then to Tommy Sawyer. Jackie's quote, a life is not important except on the impact it has on other lives. That's Jackie. That's who Jackie was. And so his uh, contributions, uh, the impact on so many lives. Absolutely. On our society. And it's never, when you think about quote, and what we're battling today in terms of our lives making an impact on other lives, it could mm-hmm. not be more relevant yeah. than it is today. Absolutely. The thinking about others and the selflessness. And 
you know, for many blacks, you know, you know, that were coming up when I was a kid and we were Dodger fans because of that, you know, because of Daddy Robinson. Like there were people like the way you have Yankee fans, you know, that are everywhere. There were Dodger fans everywhere, too, for that reason, you know, because the, the Dodgers had that kind of promise. Plus, they were such a great team, such a great organization. I also wanted to mention when you mentioned Peter O'Malley and when we talk about Walter O'Malley, I want people to know that. The Dodgers always had a family-run organization, and it was very important to the way that the operation was run. And it was one of the reasons why, Fred, you that Peter trusted you in that role, that came from knowing you as a person and knowing your character, knowing who you were, more so than analytics or betting on a guy that, you know, <laughs> should be in that. And I think it's important also to this story because the things we're going to talk about, too, uh, your your journey has been a family journey as well as anything else. And, and let's, let's go back real quick to 88 to, to that year. I just want to give people the, this remembrance of how improbable this was. Okay. Cause first of all, the Dodgers were going through a slump guys. I mean, the Dodgers were really just kind of raggedy at that point. I, I remember the eighties. It was, I, it was tough, boy. I took a lot of punishment from my Met, <laughs> Mets fan friends, you know, and, all, all those other fans. But 88, here you are, uh, Fred, you're in your second year. You, you, you tackled the rest of 87, which was a tough year for the Dodgers. But in 88, you had full control and you made some changes. Uh, but one of the biggest changes you did, and I'm struck in the book of why you made that was you, you, uh, brought Kirk Gibson onto the team and you talked about one of the reasons you did that was not just Kirk was a great player, but was for his character. Do you remember yeah. that? Well, very definitely. Yeah. Very definitely. Yeah. We, we had had in 86, we had been um, 15 games under 500. Yeah. We were 15 games under 500, or maybe it was 16 again in 87. So we entered 88. We, we were not. <laughs> Nobody uh, we, expected anything. <laughs> we, we were not a good team. No. And, uh, so, um, I, I, you know, one of the things it, it didn't necessarily propel me, but it was one thing I understood when I was given the job as general manager, the mm-hmm. writers went to Peter O'Malley and he said that they said that the question was, how long has Fred had this job? And Peter gave the best answer anybody can give. He said he has it for today. And, and that's wow. all we all, that's all I know. Wow. But wow. That was the way I accepted yeah. You got to do what you got to do. And uh, and the one thing that I asked of Peter when he asked me to take the job, the one thing I wanted understood, I said, Peter, I'll take this, but there has to be one understanding between the two of us. I get full, total, complete responsibility. Right. Because if they weren't run out of town, I want to be sure it's for the decisions I make. Yeah. In in looking at our team, uh, the the one thing that I want to put an emphasis on was character mm-hmm. and so the the players that i brought in uh the, one of the first moves i made on my um, first day on the job was to sign mickey hatcher who'd been released right. by the minnesota because i knew mickey i knew yeah. what kind of player he was yeah he didn't necessarily have the greatest talent but i'll tell you he had yeah. a ton of fire and a ton of character and yeah, he's a gritty player have fun and kick your butt yeah, and so from Mickey Hatcher to John Shelby to Tim Belcher to these players or names, and ultimately 
to the signing of um, Kirk Gibson mm-hmm. uh, because I, I knew a lot about Kirk. Uh, I knew the talent that he had, but I knew the way that he approached the game. And yeah. that meant a lot to me. And that team came together yeah. in 88. And the remarkable thing about that team, Larry, in 88, 30 years later at the anniversary of that World Series championship, when we mm-hmm. all got together, you would have thought they had played together the night before. Wow. That yeah. team had a bond yeah. that was so strong yeah. that it, it couldn't be beaten. Well, I'll tell you guys, we'll relive it uh, this moment for a second. So you had the improbable Dodgers who were supposed to lose to the Mets. They pull out this series against the Mets, and partly because of Earl Hershiser, who was the bulldog at that time. Just throwing scoreless innings, scoreless innings, scoreless innings. <laughs> Couldn't be stopped, you know. But we, no one thought the Dodgers would beat the Oakland A's, who at the time had Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, Dennis Eckersley, you know, their big ace. You know, the Oakland, a- Oakland Athletics seemed unbeatable. And in the first game of the World Series at Dodger Stadium, beautiful night, Dodgers are down 4-2 in the bottom of the ninth. And uh, I think it was 4-2. I forget who gets on base. Mike Davis got on base. Mike Davis got on base, right. But Kirk Gibson, by the way, is injured at this point. Like both of his legs, not just one leg, but both of his <laughs> legs are injured. The guy can't even stand up. No one even thinks he's going to play. They're looking at him, looking to see if he's in the dugout during the game. No sign of Kirk Gibson at all. And the story goes that Kirk, I think, was in the in the, in the the uh, locker room and saw this on television. He said, I'll show them. You know, he comes out, he tells he tells Tommy that he can hit, you know, and he can barely stand. Why Tommy Lasorda puts Kirk Gibson up to the plate? I still don't know how Tommy does that, by the way. But I'm just setting this up so people that don't know, Kirk Gibson like in a scene from The Natural that came out a little later, limps up to the plate with his bat. <laughs> you know, he's fouling off balls, fouling off balls. Uh, the crowd is going crazy, you know, not thinking, you know, hoping and praying that something might happen. But at, at the least, maybe he can get a single and get, you know, get the game tied. What was, and this is what's brilliant about baseball. Gibson remembers the scouting report about Eckersley and remembers that when he has you on the, the, you know, he's got two strikes on your full count or something like that. Three, that he's gonna, three to count, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That he's going to throw like a, I think it was like a backdoor slider or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. And uh, and Kirk Gibson, being the smart hitter that he is, he's, he takes that step out of the box. And I'll never forget that image because I learned about this later, but I've gone back and looked at it too. He steps out and he's thinking about this. Like, I know, I think I know what's coming next, you know. Sure enough, here comes the backdoor slider. He swings with his arms. His legs barely move. It goes out into the right field pavilion. Everybody goes crazy. And he limps around, fist pumping around. Dodgers win, and it propels him to the 88 win. What an amazing moment that is in the history of baseball. That is a Hall of Fame history of baseball moment, Fred. No no, no question. And a... uh... Certainly one of the most memorable moments in the history of Los Angeles sports, yeah. any sport. Oh, yeah. So um, iconic, so memorable. Yeah. I don't think any of us who had any idea what was taking place will ever um, forget it. So let's flash forward, Fred, to your, you're gone from the Dodgers where, what was this, maybe six years ago when this first happened, when you first noticed the... 2015, when I had this little spot on my lip, went to see my local dermatologist. 
So you had a spot. I want to set this so everyone knows how these things occur. So to you, what what did, what it was this? Like a little speck on your under your lip? Yeah, Cheryl couldn't see it. I I, you, I could barely see it when I looked in the mirror closely. Barely could see. But there's right. a little spot that didn't seem to want to go away, and so right. being fair skin, I went to my local dermatologist um, and uh, Mandy, and she said, um, "Fred, you know we." Um, uh, we probably should take a little biopsy of right. this spot, uh, as she would do from time to time, whether it was on my face or on my arms, that, that you know, and it was always, uh, no, no problem, Fred, this is nothing. Uh, this time I got a call that, uh, Fred, this is um, squamous cell carcinoma. She said it's small in nature, mm-hmm. but um, it should be addressed by someone with the Mohs procedure, a doctor with the Mohs procedure. Mm-hmm. So in 2000. 15, I had the most procedure, as many of us have, on our face, arms, hands, whatever. And uh, everything seemed to go well. Seemed and in that, in that procedure, did they just remove? Yeah, were- it took two swipes. You know, in the most procedure, they, they, they might take five, six, seven, ten, twelve swipes. You know, they, they mm-hmm. take it, by biopsy it, and make sure that they have mm-hmm. uh, all of the, um, all the connections are removed to the, from the cancer. It's a clear, uh, it's a clear path. Mm-hmm. So it seemed to be very innocent. Uh, right. The doctor said so, and even said so later. As it turned out, they didn't get it. My, uh-huh. uh, I, I started to have this incredible pain in my face. Okay. And uh, so now I, um, uh, I, I can't figure out what's what's happening. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I go to my dentist and say, "Is there anything that's happening here that's causing this pain?" That maybe you had a and toothache said, or something. They said no. That um, uh, the dent, from a dental standpoint, there's nothing there. Um, MRIs, uh, CAT scans. It's finally revealed that cancer has moved from that little spot in my lip a year and a half later into my jawbone. Wow! It's headed north. So I'm. Um, the recommendation is to go to City of Hope. And uh, I go to City of Hope, uh, meet with the young surgeon uh, to the staff there maybe a year before, uh, the wonderful Dr. Berman. And he said, um, uh, this is very serious mm-hmm. and this has to be dealt with. And what did, you, what did you know about the City of Hope at that time? The only thing I knew, Larry, was that my wonderful secretary, Rosie Gutierrez, mm-hmm. had been in City of Hope. Uh, with cancer, and Cheryl and I went to see her. That mm-hmm. was the only time I had ever been to City of Hope, had an awareness of City sure. of Hope being someplace east of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, seeing a sign on the freeway, having no, uh, other than Rosie, can't think of anybody that I knew yeah. that had been there. And the City of Hope is a place where they've done experimental treatments and that sort of thing. And the City of uh, Hope, Larry, has a, a fascinating and somewhat important, timely history. Uh-huh. City of Hope started in the 1900s when there was a, a pandemic. Yeah. And no one knew the answer. Right, right. And so they set up tents in this place in east of Los Angeles, in Doherty, California. Right. And doctors and nurses and the patients that no one had wanted to deal with. They had tuberculosis. Yeah. And that was the start. That was the foundation. That was the naming. The city of hope when there was no hope. 
They really wanted to give people some some dignity, right? Yeah. Some, uh, the the whole theme of it, Larry, is you you have to save the soul. Yeah. You 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 can't cure the the patient at the cost of harming the soul. Wow. So there is a truly a caring attitude that came not yeah. from a logo, not from a motto, from a foundation. Yeah. Doctors and nurses caring for patients who were literally disbanded. Mm -hmm. And with that philosophy grew the uh, City of Hope in a different area mm -hmm. where haven't been dealt with in the cancer treatment. Wow. So I walk into this hospital <laughs> and I see immediately. And I said to Cheryl, uh, as we started on the journey. Yeah. This is the greatest team I've ever been part of. Wow. Because they, when they, they gave me two choices, Larry. They said mm -hmm. that we can, this has to be removed from your jawbone. This can't, this tumor is growing mm -hmm. rapidly. So we can uh, take a, cut your leg and take a bone from your leg and replace your jawbone. Woo. And I said, you know, I said uh, What's the second option? <laughs> well, you know, it's your, people face these decisions. And so what we say, yeah. and you look back and you think, really, you said that? And I said, look, I'm 80 years old. Uh -huh. I've been blessed with great health. Um, I'm really more interested in quality of life, uh -huh. length of life. Uh -huh. And so Dr. Vernon said that, all right, and we will uh, perform the operation. We will cut your throat. We'll remove the uh, cancer, and uh, which they did, and then sent me through um, 33 radiations. Mm -hmm. They burn your face, uh, seven chemos. Wow. And uh, so this is uh, 2016. So you're 80 years old. They remove where the cancer is in your jaw. And then you go through all this chemotherapy and radiation. Thirty-three radiations. Oh my god! Uh, seven chemos. So 2017, things were looking good in January. Uh huh. And to see Doctor Vernon, felt my neck and said, "Fred, this is not good. There's a spot there." Oh no! So you you were feeling fine, and he felt a spot. I, yeah. He said, "Can't wow. you feel this, Fred?" I said, "Doctor Vernon." My neck is so sore from those radiations in the tree. But I can't really feel anything. Yeah. He said, well, we got a problem. And so that's when they put me on a immunotherapy, which is really the science of cancer treatment and medicine as we know it today with the advancements in mm -hmm. uh, technology, with the advancements in medicine, that the only they couldn't operate again. They can radiate again. They couldn't cut again. So uh, immunotherapy is, this is your only option at this point oh, because yeah. your, your body yeah. was pretty, it had to have been pretty weak at that point, right? Yeah, that was my only option. Uh -huh. And so um, that's when uh, two things happened. I said to my wonderful Cheryl, we've got to help City Hope raise some money. Mm -hmm. Because what these people do here is very important. And uh, so that's when I told her that I want to meet with the City of Hope people 
and start making plans for a golf uh, tournament. And uh, she said, uh, you got to be the only patient here with a 20% survival rate who's playing a golf tournament. It's <laughs> trying to raise money for the place. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may be, uh, but that's what we're going to do. And uh, Larry, um, immunotherapy uh, has me here today. And the journey with City Hope has continued now with all of the uh, treatments that I went through. Mm-hmm. Now, just in July of 2019, I used to say a year ago, but now it's 21. But in July of 2019, I was having more pain in my jaw. Well, the, uh, I'm going to stop you just for a second because your story, it's so detailed. So I, ha- I want to fill some things <laughs> in here, too. First, I want to talk about immunotherapy just a little bit more sure. because it's a revolutionary therapy. Yes. Um, what happens with cancer? I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor, but this is just my layman's take on it. But, uh, you know, cancer attacks your immune system and your body doesn't know how to fight cancer. It, it kind of tricks your body in many ways. And and um, there is a, a T your body has T cells and it's able to to like uh uh, trick these T cells into not behaving properly. And what immunotherapy, rather than kill, like what radiation and chemotherapy does is like, we're just going to kill everything and let, hopefully the cancer doesn't come back. But the purpose of chemotherapy and radiation is we're going to kill everything. Immunotherapy says, no, we're going to trick Precisely. your cells. We're going to trick them into operating differently so your body can attack the cancer itself. Precisely. And that's that's what's revolutionary about immunotherapy, right? Larry, too, in, in summary, there was a book written, written that just recently that said cancer used to be treated yeah. by cutting, burning, and poisoning you. Yeah. Think about Almost that. killing we're, you. We're going to cut you. We're gonna <laughs> yes. Cut you. yes. We're going to burn you. We're going to burn you <laughs> right. three times. Oh, my we're God. We're going to give you a lot of poison. Yeah. Uh, Immunotherapy, and Larry, what's really uh, amazing to me uh, and so blessed is that Mm -hmm. the advancements in immunotherapy, the Nobel Peace Prize just a couple of years ago was Mm -hmm. awarded the two doctors who were involved in the evolution of immunotherapy. Yeah. My immunotherapy in uh, 2000. 17 mm-hmm. wouldn't have been possible two years before that. Wow. I was placed on a clinical trial with um, four other uh, patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the immunotherapy now saves me, keeps yeah. me. But the physical part, my jawbone then in 2019 has disintegrated because of all the radiation, the treatment. Wow. So now I go back and they say, uh, the only choice we have, Fred, is that we're going to have to take that bone from your leg and, to, and replace your jaw. Bone. So that original, that original, uh, <laughs> now, but this is what's fascinating. The original surgery that you said, no, I don't think so. I'm eight years old. But at 83, you go, you know what? That doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> you know? but, but, but the difference is, here's what's fascinating to me about the difference. Because I think we're going to look back years from now and think a lot of the treatments were barbaric for the times, like the way people think putting a leech on that is going to make you better, you know. But the fact that you have to almost kill your body to survive and the fact that they would they would have removed that. And, you know, they're doing it 
in the best interest, of course, and put your bone there. But it doesn't mean that the cancer is gone or might not come back. But with the immunotherapy, the traces of the cancer are gone. And now they're doing it after it's gone, which is interesting. You know, it's 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 now it's being done to replace just a bad jaw rather than a cancer riddled jaw. Uh, Immunotherapy is what killed has killed or kept the cancer uh, at bay. You, yeah. you never, when you battle cancer, Larry, you never want to say I beat it because yeah. it's an opponent that, that can get up off the floor. So don't, uh-huh. don't ever take that opponent lightly, you know. Uh, but I think the importance, Larry, is that the importance for all of us, mm-hmm. all of your listeners, all of us involved, mm-hmm. take good care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You're going to need your body to fight the biggest battles that you will ever fight in your life. Yeah. And if you're not thinking about how, you, and I've always been very fortunate. I was a runner. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been uh, so blessed with good health. I was 80 mm-hmm. years old and never took a single medication. Wow. One. Amazing. Not one. I'd be going to the nurses and say, well, what have you been on? I said, I've been on nothing. Right. <laughs> but the good air and, yeah. and 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 good genes and yeah. but I know because now now as as fortunate I've been with good health. Now when they cut your leg open and take a bone out, mm-hmm. now you gotta get back up and you gotta get yeah. out of bed and you gotta try to walk and you gotta do all these things. Yeah. You you better be in the best shape that you can be. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get through this, but it's uh, and I think of it, Larry, in terms of um, what all of us face today. Yeah, in the pandemic mm-hmm. with COVID, is that uh, we're losing so many mm-hmm. because of the as of the underlying illnesses. But it just shows the mm-hmm. medicine is advancing, uh, but we, we the people have to keep up with taking care of ourselves to take mm-hmm. advantage of the things that now are there to help us. And one thing you've had for it too, of course, your great wife, Cheryl, who's with you the whole time. Um, give us a glimpse into that, taking that journey with Cheryl. I know sometimes it's tougher on the person going through it physically. Of course, you have all the pain and everything, but they have kind of a psychic pain, I guess, going how, how well, what's been the toughest part of this journey, uh, especially in relation to um, how Cheryl has been there with you the whole time? Well, the I'll say this in, in, in an overview. The most valuable part of any patient's recovery are the caregivers. They, they, uh-huh. they are the unheralded heroes uh-huh. of the team. We can hear all the stories about the survivor, and isn't that great? And that is wonderful, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That happens because of the people around us who support us. I never, until COVID came, ever, not one time in four years, of literally maybe a hundred visits a year, walked into City of Hope without Cheryl mm-hmm. on my side. I never walked into radiation where this helmet was made for me by a fellow who once worked for uh, the famous Dr. Joe, the friend, where Cheryl's hand wasn't on my leg as they shot me back into the treatment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been a uh, a blessing uh, in so many ways, Larry. And mm-hmm. if you know her and know uh, what a fierce competitor she is on yeah. the or was on tennis yeah. court or is in life, that uh, she's not giving up. Yeah. And, and when you have somebody that's not giving up on you, you sure as heck can't be the one to give up. Mm-hmm. So she has uh, signed cards to her. She is the wind beneath my wings. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's why I've um, been able to uh, to be here and to survive the journey that I've uh, been through with, uh, with Cheryl and um, with my children. Mm-hmm. And with my and with friends, I mean, so many wonderful, wonderful friends and, and supporters, and uh, I've just been very blessed. And that really is what, and we should have that in mind, Larry, for all of us, as we know that we have people who are not doing well. The support system is so critically important. Yeah, it takes a little to do to call someone say, "I'm thinking of you." Right. We we try to make a habit to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the spirit that you have uh, in these situations, I agree, is it's as important as any medication or anything else. It's it's kind of, uh, you know, I'm so inspired by the City of Hope, too. I have to tell you, Fred, just everything in this book. And I, 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 one of the reasons I wanted to do this, I wanted people to know that not just about your journey, but just how attitude can make such a difference. The spirit of the people that work there and and do these things. It's just, it, it's almost life giving in and of itself. Right. It, it, it is so, it is so inspiring. Yeah. Larry. It, you know, really when I walk in the city of hope, uh, I almost feel like I'm walking into the Dodger clubhouse. <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. Uh, patience. You have a, a band around your wrist. This, I, this is a team that I identify with. Mm-hmm. My heart and soul right. is there. And that's why I wanted to do everything I can to help them. And funds from the book go to City Hope. But more important than mm-hmm. that, uh, the, the, the reviews on Amazon capture two things, Larry, that I wanted to capture in the book if it was going mm-hmm. to be successful. City Hope must be an incredible place. And Cheryl must be an incredible character. Mm-hmm. And those are the two things I think that come through that to me give so much meaning mm-hmm. to the efforts. Um, but you're, Larry, you're you're right. People need to be aware, and um, I've been fortunate to uh, uh, give reference to other people for second opinions at City mm-hmm. of Hope, and um, and that has uh, been so meaningful to me in. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my life to be able to do that. But it is a uh, mm-hmm. uh, incredible, incredible uh, medical. So just as there are others, I mean, it's not to say right. that I mean, the, the Mayo Clinic or yes. Anderson or so many others, I mean, throughout our country, throughout our world. Mm-hmm. And Larry, Larry, here's the most important thing. When you think about this pandemic, and I've seen this full force, it's hard, if, unless you've been a patient city of hope, it's almost impossible to understand how this has impacted a mm-hmm. cancer treatment center. Mm. Now, family and friends can't go in with the patient. Right. The experience is different. Uh, yeah. It's totally uh, as difficult as it is. I mean, mm-hmm. I think about as a patient looking back, 
how fortunate I've been yeah. to have Cheryl there, to have family there, to have uh, loved ones there. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist. So this whole thing uh, with, the, with the pandemic and our inability to handle it from the top in a proper way mm-hmm. impacts lives that go far beyond yeah. COVID itself. As we all know, as our hospitals get more overrun, yeah. and that's why our hospitals uh, need the support today uh, more than ever. These, these are uh, these are the inspirational people uh, uh-huh. to me. They're the most in- inspirational people, uh, really, that I've ever um, encountered in my life. Yeah, I agree. I have two nurses in my family, and my my father became a doctor later in life. You know, and and uh, there's so much just unheralded heroics that goes into oh. <laughs> what these people do. And, and they don't ask for it either. They don't want the heroics, you know, oh, it's, no. it's, it's kind of what you do when you go to one of these places and, you know, 2020 has been such a tough year when you mentioned the pandemic and everything. And what, what is the thing just personally that keeps you going, Fred? I know you've been through such a tough time and everything. And what, what every day is the thing that keeps you positive about things? What really uh, keeps me positive is um, that I can be helpful uh, mm-hmm. to others. Good. Uh, that I can make a uh, uh, an impact in, in, in any small way. Mm-hmm. That, that's what really um, that's what drives. I mean that that's the um, the most important part of uh, of my journey. Whether it's a, a podcast an interview to talk about the city of hope to talk about uh, this great center to talk to other patients and very and the reason i went public was because i i didn't want to run and hide i i wanted people to know to take care of themselves and particularly with the skin cancer use sunscreen you use protection use lip gloss yeah protect yourself and, and the impact of some little things like that, and even being on social media, I had a message from someone that I didn't know on LinkedIn who said that a sister-in-law was fighting a similar cancer, and would I be receptive to uh, uh, having a phone call uh, with her? And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, really, right. the... the the opportunity uh, to do that, uh, and, and it's very important there in terms to um, of getting a second opinion when 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 you don't feel right, and your your family or nurses or I mean it is so critically important. And during my journey, a uh, uh, friend Ross Porter was so uh, supportive uh, of uh, yeah. of me. Ex announcer uh, for the Dodgers, yeah. and, and he reached out to uh, Tom uh, Brokaw, who gave me a, a call one day. And Tom said something that was very meaningful. Uh, I didn't know him well, but I knew him from his being in uh, Los Angeles in the media. And he said, and he said, Fred, I've been on the board of the Mayo Clinic. And he said, I want to tell you something. And Tom, as you know, has got cancer himself. Yeah, he's been battling that, yeah. And the message, the reason I mentioned that is his words were, never be afraid to ask for a second opinion. Wow. We're fighting for our lives. 
we need to fight with everything that we possibly have. We, we need to uh, try to look forward to every fortunate day that we have. So that that part, of, that's what really keeps me going, Larry. The uh, uh, I, I enjoy other things, as you know. I enjoy playing <laughs> golf. I yeah. enjoy baseball. I enjoy them being a, a patient of um, of City of Hope. Well, and the last thing is, even in a tough year like this, the Dodgers won the championship this past year, Fred. How awesome is that? And what made me so happy, Larry, was that a great supporter of mine in so many ways, and he's become a dear friend, uh, is Dave Roberts. Yeah, great manager of the Dodgers. And in 2019, when the Dodgers um, failed to achieve their goal, I think they won a record number of games. Uh, I believe the other team cheated. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I sent a text to Dave, and I said, uh, Dave, your team uh, set a record for wins. I never heard you once take any credit. I've only heard you take responsibility. And I said, and this was 2019, I look forward to the day when I see you hosting the World Series Championship. And that will be a happy day for me. And that day happened in 2020. So yeah, that yeah. Was, uh, that's great. That's awesome. Fred, thanks so much for taking the time on this Saturday morning to speak with us. I'm so glad that people got to hear your, your story. Uh, such a journey you've been on uh, with the team and the City of Hope and your life. It's such an inspiration. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Larry. I appreciate your uh, support and the uh, support of City of Hope. Absolutely. And I just want to say, guys, uh, two things. Dodger Blue is one of them. (laughs) But also, character matters. It really matters. You know, we've seen it in so many different situations. We've talked about it in different forms. But you talk to somebody like, like Fred here, character matters and it's always mattered to him and it's always made a difference in his life and don't let anybody tell you that integrity is not important and i want to thank you fred thank you very much Larry. all right fred claire you guys extra innings get the book fred claire's journey to city of hope and finding a world championship team you can get it on the amazon or wherever you buy books thanks again fred 